ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and narrator, Spring Heel Jack, and today I will be bringing you something that's a little off my uh, normal topic of conversation, but it is an awful fucking story, and I am fully prepared to dive into the shittier aspects of it, as is my custom. So, with that being said, this is your friendly disclaimer. This podcast is not safe for work. This is not safe for school. Please do not play this for your children, because I say fuck, shit, ass, and cock quite a bit. And uh, I have no intention of changing that. So if you're easily offended, or you're one of those sensitive types, please, you've been warned, turn this shit off now. Also, if you're doing a school report on the subject that I'm covering in this podcast, do not cite me to your teachers, please. There are no letters or credentials after or before my name. Not ones that would fucking help you in school, at least, so please take that for what it's worth as well. That being said, today I'm going to be covering probably one of the most well-known songs of all time, and that song is uh, called Amazing Grace, and it's by this Englishman piece of shit that I feel most people don't really know the full story. Um, I was... I recently heard the the relative some semblance of the truth about this guy and I was horrified and uh, slightly amused but I feel like most people believed this song to be mm, uh, I know I believe it was a slave song when I was younger that it was just kind of incorporated into Christianity and assimilated into their like religious worship music I suppose but uh, everyone has heard it you've heard it at a funeral you've heard it on TV when somebody dies it's oftentimes played when humility or like a tragic event has happened on humility is needed. Uh, I swear everybody and their mother does a fucking cover. So I'm going to share one of my favorites part of it with you. And that is from the punk band, the Dropkick Murphys. I own no rights to this song, but it's one of my favorites. That is a good version of that song. And I'm not really that religious. When I say I'm not really that religious, like I barely acknowledge religion at all. I'm not religious even a little bit. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that I do love a good redemption story. And uh, I'd say that this is one. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I definitely love when it stays dark forever and fucking nobody gets better and everyone stays drunk the whole time. But. This guy came around, and he did it himself, which is pretty fucking cool, because most people don't. Um, but this guy was a royal piece of shit. And uh, I'm going to stop telling you how much of a piece of shit he was and just read about how much of a piece of shit he was. After a word from this fake company that does not sponsor me. Sweaty leather tracksuit? Absurdly fat Deglo laces? Something missing? Complete the look with a replica car sign insignia on a chunky gold plate chain at Vice City's one-stop shop for people who know how to put the hip into hip-hop. Wow, you look fresh. Complete the look. John Newton Jr. was born in London on July 24th, 1725. His father was for many years master of a ship in the Mediterranean trade route. And in 1748, uh, went out as governor of York, of York Fort in Hudson Bay, where he died in the year 1950. His son wrote of him in his one of his many books 
There was a sternness and severity about my father's manner, arising from the effect of his training in the Jesuit college in Spain, which induced a feeling of fear rather than of love, and which overawed and broke my spirit. Yet I am persuaded that my father loved me, though he seemed not willing that I should know it. Uh, of his mother, though, Newton wrote, My mother was the pious example of a Christian woman. I was her only child, and she was of weak constitution and retired temper. Almost all of her employment uh, was the care of my education. And at the time when I could not have been more than three years of age, she herself taught me English, and with so much success. <laughs> he tooting his own horn, I see. As I had something of a forward turn. And when I was four years old, I could read with propriety in any common book that offered. She stored my memory, which was then very retentive, with many valuable pieces, chapters, portions of scriptures, catechisms, hymns, and poems. She also taught him to pray. However, she died when he was only seven years seven years old, but he uh, never forgot her, tore him up, fucking ruined him. Like, a lot of people say that this is when he initially lost faith in Christianity and God. Um... In the years that followed this, he sank to the lowest depths of just degradation and depression as he uh, continued to realize how much he missed his mom. So it says uh, that uh, the, the religious training in his home was extremely important because his mom's devotion gave Newton a sense of, of worth, of being of value. But after her death in July of 1732, he was harshly treated by his dad and suffered a very adverse reaction. Soon after his mother's death, his father remarried and the stepmom devoted all her care to her own son and none of that Pornhub attention to young John. John was treated with kindness for the most part, but there was no further interest taken in anything having to do with his welfare other than his schooling. He began to keep company with idle and ungodly children, in his own words, and soon began to learn their ways. At the ripe young age of eight, he was sent to a school in Stratford in Essex for two years, where he was exposed to harsh treatment by a merciless headmaster, which, um, coming so soon after his unusual dependence on his mother's care and his strong affection for her deepened his sense of loss and bewilderment at how cruel the world could be. He became indifferent even to his own interests and careless in uh, religion. Like, he didn't give a shit about religion anymore. He uh, was cured of his belief, so to speak. However, he spoke good Latin, <laughs> according to the headmaster. Then at the age of 11, his father took him to sea, and he made six voyages with him before his father retired in 1742. During this time, Newton had alternating periods of piety and being a dick and douchebag, as most people do during puberty time. And in 1742, he met his future wife, Mary Catlett, who was his mother's best friend's daughter. She was 14, an older woman for him. Uh, and of her he wrote, I was impressed with an affection for her, which has never abated or lost its influence over me. Aww. None of the scenes of misery and wickedness I afterwards experienced ever banished her for an hour together from my waking thoughts for s <laughs> the seven following years. That's pretty terrible when you hear about the seven following years. He was always thinking about her. But alas, in that same year, through the influence of bad companionship and through reading characteristics by Shaftesbury, he became an avowed infidel. <laughs> and so as he wrote, I renounced the hopes and comfort of the gospel when every other man was about to fail when every other hope was about to fail me let me read that again i renounced the hopes and comfort of the gospel when every other hope was about to fail me got it early in 1744 on the outbreak of war with france he became the victim of what was called then a press gang i believe now they call it the draft essentially what these guys would do is they would be paid by the uh, the royal navy to go around and just like beat people into the navy 
or uh, forcibly, I think, I believe the term was Shanghai in them, they would force them into service, uh, regardless of age or pretty much just, they would, it's, it was essentially slavery for English citizens. Uh, the actual definition is a body of men employed to enlist men forcibly into the service of the army or the navy to forcibly enlist. Um, it was essentially like a, a last-ditch effort to fucking staff the ship and the services. A lot of people have done this, you know, different countries, whatever. But uh, So this was because of France and the outbreak of war. Uh, probably through his father's influence, though, he was speedily made a midshipman, which is a pretty fucking big deal because of how young he was. But midshipmen on traditional Navy vessels are officers of the junior most rank uh, in the Royal Navy. The United States Navy and many Commonwealth navies, the Commonwealth countries that use the rank would include Canada, Australia, so on the colony, former colonies. But what does that mean to be a midshipman? They technically they outrank the senior most enlisted members, like um, sergeant majors of the Marine Corps or master chiefs of the Navy. They are the Easiest way to look at it is they were officers in training. They were on their way to becoming official rated officers in the Navy. Um, the lowest rank, as far as like the uh, commissioned officer pay grade in the United States Navy goes, they'd be considered an 01. So they would outrank an enlisted man in the Navy. He became an officer, essentially. Just a confusing fucking officer, uh, the way that it was worded. But people say that was because of his dad's influence and how well-known his dad was. Uh, his ship anchored in the Downs, which was bound for the East Indies, and the captain, who was his father's friend, gave him a day's leave. But he took advantage of the occasion to revisit Mary Cartlett's home in Kent and deliberately overstayed his leave. On a second occasion, he deserted in order to visit his father and to escape the voyage to the East Indies. And he was, unfortunately, however, arrested almost at his destination, brought back to his ship, uh, beaten within an inch of his life, and put in irons. And then they brought him back to Plymouth. They walked him through the street like a felon, because he was, and uh, he started to feel hatred, shame, and fear, he says. He was confined for two days in the guardroom, and then uh, sent on board the ship in irons and publicly stripped and flogged, after which he was uh, stripped of his fucking title, and his former companions were forbidden to show him any favor or even speak to him. Uh, when he was a midshipman, he had been entitled to some command, which being sufficiently haughty and vain, uh, he had not been very well liked. <laughs> he was now, in turn, brought down to a level that was extremely low and exposed to insults from any and all, which he was very keen to give out when he was a midshipman, which nobody likes the trainee telling the seasoned sailor what to do, that's for sure. On the voyage to Madeira, he gave way to despair and even thought of murdering his dad's friend, the captain. He also decided to commit, commit suicide, but the thought of Mary Catlett actually saved him. Could not bear that she should think cruelly on him when he was dead. And I believe we call that codependency today. Um, she, he didn't want her to think that he was a coward. And for what it's worth, he made the right call. But with the captain's permission, he changed from this ship and boarded a vessel bound to Sierra Leone when they finally got to Madeira. The captain of this ship which was coincidentally a slave ship, was also acquainted with his father and wished to treat the son well. But Newton soon became uncontrollable, as was his custom, 
And uh, he's quoted as saying about this ship that he not only sinned with high hand, but made it his study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. So no matter how many times he was rescued, he always relapsed into his old bullshit, and he continued to defy his religious training or, you know, fucking brainwashing from his youth, and attempting to dissuade others from their beliefs perpetually. Of all of the sins to which he later confessed, his habits of chipping away at the faith of others remained the one that hit heaviest on his heart. Uh, In 1744, he began his career in slave trading. He uh, joined that slave vessel that was um, in, that was headed to Sierra Leone after he was disgraced, relieved of his post, and traded for another man from that passing ship, which was a slave vessel. He wasn't exactly asking permission from the captain. He was kind of uh, <laughs> kicked off the side of the ship in international water, so to speak. But he began his career in slave trading, and Newton soon became tempted by the profits. Merchants believed that trafficking in human trade was justified since slavery was permitted in the Bible as long as slaves were treated with dignity and kindness. Um, woo. Amen. What the fuck is that shit? That's a holy book? So, uh, that Newton engaged in the slave trade in such a manner that was demonstrated by the willingness of slaves to secretly carry his letters to the port of Santa Mary. Whatever. Despite a promising start with the slaver off the coast of Sierra Leone, Newton once again found himself in dire straits. He was felled by malaria, and he was at the mercy of the slaver's native mistress. It was actually his wife, despite what this says, whose abuse reduced him to the condition of the wretch he later described in his hit song, number one selling single, Amazing Grace. He recovered, however, but was soon to face another trial during which he was strengthened and inspired by some religious book that he was fucking choking down. Newton was aboard his ship one night when a violent storm broke out, and moments after he left the deck, the crewman who had taken his place on watch duty was swept overboard, and although he manned the vessel for the remainder of the Tempest, he later commented that throughout the tumultuous storm, he realized his helplessness and concluded that the only grace, only the grace of God could save him. Prodded by what he had read in this book, Newton took the first, uh, small step towards accepting religion, and in the... To quote his hit single, he uh, took his first step because in his hem he marked this incident as the hour he first believed. Upon his safe return home in the 1740s, Newton immediately wrote to the Cowlett family to plead his case to marry Mary. (laughs) Although he could offer no financial security or dowry or really anything, when Mary herself replied that she would consider him as a suitor, he returned to slaving to better his fortunes this time on a ship full of slaves bound across the Atlantic to Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, he made that money, dollar-dollar bills, y'all, so Newton was wed to Mary Cartlett in 1750, allegedly a changed man. He accepted the helm of a ship bound for Africa, and this time he encouraged the sailors under his charge to pray rather than taunt them and ridicule them mercilessly for being fucking witches for their beliefs. He also began to ensure that every member of his crew treated their human cargo with some sort of a gentleness, I guess, and concern. Doesn't matter. You're still a fucking slaver, dude. However, it would be another 40 years until Newton openly challenged the trafficking of slaves. How do you like to enjoy a Rusty Brown's ring donut? I like to lick lovingly around the outside and then thrust my tongue in the middle. I like to munch it vigorously. I just love the batter all over my face. On Friday nights, I just can't stop eating Rusty Brown's ring donuts. Oh my god, it's so good. Sometimes I like to wear women's panties and walk around Fifth Street. 
When you go downtown, make sure you enjoy Rusty Brown's Ring Donuts. About three years after his marriage, Newton suffered a stroke that prevented him from returning to sea. Just imagine him looking like Marlon Brando, all fucking saggy and shit in The Godfather. But in time, he interpreted this as another step of his spiritual journey. He assumed a post in the customs office in the port of Liverpool and began to explore Christianity more fully. As Newton attempted to experience all the various expressions of Christianity, it became clear that he was being called to minister. He lacked a university degree, and he could not be ordained through normal channels. However, the landlord of the parish in some place called Olney was so impressed with the letters that Newton had written about his conversion that he offered the church to Newton, and he was ordained in 1764. It was there that he met poet William Cowper, also a newly born Christian. And there's nothing more inspiring than newly found Christians. Their friendship led to a spiritual collaboration that completed the inspiration for Amazing Grace. The poem Newton most likely penned around Christmas of 1772, 60 years later in America, and the text was set to the hymn uh, of a tune called New Britain, to which it has been sung ever since. Um, all that Christianity shit, I can take it or leave it, but what I do like about his later life is that the former slaver spoke out quite vocally about slavery. Even though many of England's great shipping cities prospered from the slave trade, social critics began to speak out against them by the mid-18th century. So by 1780 or so, the powerful voice of William Wilberforce was added to this chorus. Wilberforce was a member of Parliament and was the nephew of one of Newton's London friends, inspired by the former slave trader. And paralleling Newton's own conversion, Wilberforce began to question his role in life. And although Newton, then a lonely curate, was uh, convinced that Wilberforce was just another wealthy politician, he persuaded him to crusade for change and use his station in life and his powerful friends, including the Prime Minister, to seek reform. Uh, one of the chief topics for the advocacy was abolition of slavery. In fact, Wilberforce wrote in his journal on October 28, 1787, that one of the two goals that he had been set before him was the suppression of the slave trade. Uh, Newton joined in the fight for the abolition of slavery by publishing the essay, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, which is actually really fucking good. Um, I recommend reading that. It's pretty good. Because Christians still felt that slavery was justified in the Bible when it profited them, Newton and Wilberforce wisely avoided building their protests on a religious platform. Instead, they condemned the practice of an inhumane treatment of their fellow men and women. Newton, speaking strongly from personal experience, also proposed that the captors were in turn brutalized by their callous treatment of others and cited offenses including torture, rape, and murder. Newton's friend, the poet William Cowper, joined their fight also by writing pro-abolition poems and ballads, which I would love to hear. In 1789, Wilberforce introduced a bill called a Bill for the Abolition of Slavery in Parliament, and the bill faced opposition in both houses because everyone was making money off it. But the forces against uh, enactment became weaker each time it came to a vote, and the bill was finally passed by the House of Commons in 1804 and by the House of Lords in 1807, after which King George III said, okay, and it was law. Um, there's no direct link between Amazing Grace and the abolition of slavery, though, in Britain, uh, at least. Nonetheless, the hymn was written by a man who was moved to speak out against something from which he had once profited. Uh, in an essay, Newton said, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Which, I get that. 
I totally understand that. And that's why I like this guy, because he didn't ever try to sugarcoat what he was. It's uh, Everyone that writes about him seems to sugarcoat what he was, but he never did, and I really like that. That saved a rich like me? Like, that's pretty uh, pretty brutally honest. That's just describing a low point, and I, I love that about him. Uh, it seems fitting that this hem has become for so many, including all those fighting for civil rights, an anthem against all forms of so- social injustice, because this guy, uh, he didn't have an easy life. And he was able to turn it around just by being aware of it and being self-aware. And uh, I like that. I really like that. And speaking of being self-aware, that is something that this next guy is not. And, um, you know, I like sharing different things with you. This is another wonderful rendition of Amazing Grace by John Newton. Praise the Lord. Jesus, in the name of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. I want people to sing with me too. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning back in. This has been another, like, half-sized episode of the Anthology of Horror. Why? Because I paid for a a whole fuckload of studio airtime that I did not use. So I am making sure that you guys get your money's worth, I guess. But having recently uploaded an episode so soon, there are no stats in for it yet. But I appreciate you guys for tuning back in. I appreciate all new listeners. If you want to get in touch with me, please do so by emailing spring Jack at anthologyofhorror.com. You can go to anthologyofhorror.com as well and listen to the podcast there. Guaranteed ad-free because I value your time. Um, once again, if you want to get in touch with me for hate mail or to tell me how much I suck or how much you wish I was dead or if you like the podcast, please do not hesitate to reach out and you can do that at anthologyofhorror.com or at my email account, you simply will send your email to springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com. Thank you. And thank you all very much for tuning back in. I appreciate each and every one of you. Please continue to spread the word. I have big things potentially on the horizon. I don't want to uh, curse myself or jinx it, but thanks to your continued support. And uh, surprisingly, I shouldn't be surprised. You guys have been pretty consistent, if anything. Uh, your devoted patronage, I'll say. I have been... I've had several pretty exciting opportunities present themselves, and hopefully they work out. And I will be far more transparent with that in the hopefully not-so-distant future, and I'll let you know what's going on. But until then, stay spooky.